media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, you can open your Bibles back to Genesis. And uh, Walker and Bonnie Kate, thank you again. That was amazing. Really appreciate you starting us off in worship this morning. How many of you like to solve mysteries? Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, all that kind of stuff. Was that ever Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew? You know those kind of things. Uh, our girls kind of grew up with with the Nancy Drew and, and that kind of stuff. Carly and I. Uh, have uh, a special care and love for a lot of the Sherlock Holmes and the Agatha Christie uh, mysteries because years ago, before DVDs and CDs and all that, uh, we went on our trips from seminary back home, which was about 14, 15, 16 hours, depending on how fast the traffic was moving, uh, going from Fort Worth back to uh, Atlanta and back and forth, uh, we would go to the library and we would check out these books on tape. How many of you remember that? Cassettes. You know, not quite as old as eight tracks, but, uh, you know, the cassettes. And the problem with the cassettes is that, you know, you would, you'd have to put in like eight for, you know, uh, during a, a trip that was, you know, just a two hour part. You'd have to go through about eight of those. And we just fell in love with them. You know, that was kind of past the time and we really enjoyed the aspect of trying to figure out who done it. And there was times that we were kind of smart, maybe on our game a little bit, and we were able to put the clues together and go, I bet it was, you know, the butler in the pantry with the, you know, we kind of do the whole clue thing. There was other times that until Sherlock Holmes or until the, the author's, you know, uh, heroine kind of revealed the clues, then you went back and you went, ah, it was there all the time. I see this clue and this clue and this clue, and all of a sudden you see it fitting together. Well, I share that this morning, not to share with you just, you know, a point of Carly in my life and, and something that we shared years and years ago, but that when we look at this whole advent from the time of Genesis to the time of Revelation, we see that God, especially in the Old Testament, has given us tremendous hints at what's going to be accomplished through Jesus Christ. He's given us a foretelling of what's going to happen, and we see this over and over again. Last week we saw that humanity needed a rescuer, and that humanity comes down to individuals, you and I. That because of Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, sin came into our lives. And from that time on, every single human being has this sin nature. We're born with it. We didn't just develop it over time. It was something that we were born from the very first moment we have this sin nature. And it separates us from a holy God. Now, if that was the end of the story, that would be the saddest story ever. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God, knowing our need, promises a rescuer. And that rescuer would come thousands of years later in Christ Jesus. And Christ would provide a way for you and I as sinners to have our sins forgiven, and we can have a relationship, a right relationship, again with a holy God. And so this morning as we begin to go back, uh, let's go again back to Genesis and see Genesis 3.15. And I will be the first one to admit, 
I, I'm surprised nobody came up last week. Either it was totally over your heads or you just didn't have time to, to talk with afterwards. And I said, you know, Genesis 3.15 is what uh, a lot of uh, scholars call the, the proto-evangelia, basically the first gospel, that this is the first time that the gospel was really pronounced. And yet, look at Genesis 3.15. Now, again, last week we looked at it in context of Genesis 2 and, and uh, 3 altogether. Uh, today we're going to kind of look at it without going back and reviewing the whole thing. But look at it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Where is the mention of a cross? Where is the mention of a little baby Jesus? Where is the mention of any of that? Why would scholars look back to this verse and say, here's the first pronouncement of the gospel? It's because when we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we really do begin to see that we have hints here that begin to display God's final answer. If you just had this one verse, I, I would agree that it would be kind of, we'd all be kind of clueless. But it's, that's why we take the whole Bible in context with verses altogether. Whenever you take a verse from the Bible just by itself, you can make it say pretty much about anything that you want to. You can make it say this, that, or anything in between. And so this verse is, I truly believe with all my heart, the first gospel. And it's a promise that God would uh, fulfill in the coming of Christ, and some of it is yet to be fulfilled. There's still they coming in Revelation when Christ will take Satan and cast him in final judgment to a hell, and he will be the first one cast in there. So some of this has happened. Some of it is yet to happen. And yet when we open up the Bible, we begin to see all these hints, if you want to call them, about how God will crush Satan, bring judgment, that is, against Satan, and how he will provide a rescuer for his people. The problem is that sometimes the Bible, when you just look at one verse, can seem quite cryptic. How did you get that? My wife will ask me all the time, how did you get that out of that verse? And I said, I just made it up. No, I, I would tell her, I, because of this verse and this verse or that verse. And it's the beauty of the gospel, and it's the beauty of the Bible, is that God, through all these lands, through all these people, through all time, the, the thousands of years that it took to, to, the hundreds and hundreds of years that it took to write the Bible, that he's compiled it, and it truly is all connected by this thread of the beauty of the gospel, of the hope of Christ. And that's why I can put much confidence, all my confidence of my life, into the word of God and know, okay, this is God speaking to us. Now, when we go back and we begin to look in the Old Testament, we begin to see some of these clues. Some of them come as fast as just a couple chapters later. Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we're, we're told about Noah and the ark. Familiar with that story? A lot of people are. If you grow up in church... It's probably one of the first ones that you heard. It's kind of interesting. We always think about the animals two by two and how they came and they got on the ark, began to rain. The rain flooded the earth and basically everybody on earth died except for Noah and his family. So it's kind of this cool story of Noah and the ark. It's also kind of a tragic story because we see in there, if we're just realists, God says in Genesis 6, I will blot out. This part of his creation. I mean, that's judgment. 
And yet we see the beauty of this good news. This is the mix that we get throughout the Bible. That God really is a holy God. And so being a holy God, there is judgment against sin. At the same time, he's provided a way for us who are sinners to be without sin. That is, our sins would be paid for. And we see this going on even in the Old Testament. We begin to look in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, look what it says in verse 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which uh, is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Did we leave that part out when we told this story to our kids when they were little? I mean, it's one of those, that, that's, that's scary stuff, guys. This is the judgment of God. And rather than apologize for the judgment of God, I mean, there are times I'd much rather focus on the love of God. I, you know, hey, John 3, 16, I love this. But that love is made even that much more uh, outstanding when we begin to understand what we really deserve, and that is this judgment. I mean, Noah wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. He had been born with a sin nature just like all the other person. And yet it says in Genesis 6 that he has a heart toward God. It even calls him blameless. It didn't mean that he was without sin. It meant that he turned his heart and his life toward God. And so God says, okay, I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna use you to build an ark to gather together two of all these animals and, and a multitude of these other animals and you're going to bring them together and you're going to... This is how I'm going to let life go on. But look at verse 18. After this, verse 17, where there's judgment, look at the first word of verse 18. But in the face of judgment, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. This is where we begin to get one of the first hints of the gospel, the first hints that God was going to send a rescuer. In one way, this is a rescue story. This by itself, God saves Noah and his family and the animals from being blotted out, if we want to use that really harsh term, but it is a term that God uses. From this judgment, there was a rescuer. And God provides this ark. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And these are words that continue throughout the Old Testament. This word covenant and God establishing covenant with man to point toward Christ. Turn a few more pages over to to Genesis chapter 12. It's the story of Abraham. And Abraham calls God. Uh, Abraham, again, did not call God. God called Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I want you to do something. I want you to leave everything that is familiar with you, everything that you know, that you're accustomed to, and I want you to leave that, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and and all your families on earth, and you, all the families on earth shall be blessed. Once again, we see God establishing a covenant with Abraham. He selects Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you follow me, and, and I will 
establish this covenant, and I will do something really pretty remarkable. I will bless all the nations of the world, not just one nation, but eventually all the nations of the world through you. All the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, now what is this? What is this prediction? Well, ultimately, it's the prediction that from Abraham and from his lineage will come Christ. And we see this pronounced throughout the Old Testament. That will come from the family David. David comes from Abraham. And we see this lineage go down, and God preserves this lineage. Now, you can only imagine the surprise giving this covenant and giving this good news that God is going to save the world through one of the descendants of Abraham. When God tells him one day to go sacrifice his son, his only son. How are you going to continue to the lineage? How, how will I have descendants? How will I have grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons if I kill my son? Look what it says, Genesis 22.2. He, that is God, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, if you have this promise that God's going to bless you, and you've tried as best as you can to be faithful to keeping your end of that promise, which Abraham did fail a couple times, and yet God's grace prevailed, I would think that Abraham really was kind of confused by this. That this hint of the gospel that was coming was one that kind of went right over Abraham's mind. I mean, it would be me if, if, if God had, permit, uh, had uh, said that through my descendants that the world would be blessed, and now you're going to take out my opportunity to have descendants by taking my son away? Confusion. And oftentimes when we open up the Bible, I think that's where we get stuck. And instead of seeing things in whole, and we see the end of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, we kind of get, get stuck on those parts. I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you, when you look at some of the judgments of the Old Testament, when you see that God's blotting out this part of humanity, it does make us, in our modern mind, go, okay, what's up with that, God? But when we look collectively as a whole, we begin to see the beauty of this picture. Instead of apologizing for God's holiness and that he would bring judgment upon sin, we begin to see the love of God in light of that judgment that he would provide for us a way, a rescuer that would come to us. So he tells him, okay, go sacrifice your son. And Abraham takes Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and he takes all all the stuff, the wood that's there. Isaac was familiar with the sacrifice. They'd probably sacrificed many, many times before. And, And so they get up there and... And Isaac, the son, begins to question not so much the motive of Abraham, but maybe his forgetfulness. Hey, Dad, what's going on here? Look at verse 7 and 8. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, Behold, the fire and the wood, those who were both necessary for a burnt offering, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? God Dad, if if we're going to do an offering, a burnt offering to God, if we're going to do a sacrifice to God, I think we're missing really a very, very important part. The the lamb. And look what Abraham says. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Fast forward 
God does. He provides a ram caught in the thicket. But you know what that was right there? It's a hint. It's another one of those hints where God is pronouncing, even in Genesis, where he's saying, one day I'm going to provide for you the final rescuer. The one is the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God will come, and it will be an offering for your sin. This goes on and on. Uh, we, we can go to the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and, and he goes in there, and he has really a hard time. He keeps on making the right choices, and and yet he always gets the, the short end of the stick. And we can travel through the life of Joseph and see that, you know, here, here's a guy who had tremendous faith in the face of uh, amazing adversity and, and doing the right thing and still coming up kind of short each time. And yet God was working something. God was working as a hint toward his provision of a rescuer. There's a time there's finally that Joseph comes and he's second in all of command of Egypt. The only one that's greater in Egypt is Pharaoh. And, and Joseph has been given responsibility for all these other things. And God tells him that there's a famine that's going to be coming. And so he devises a plan. Joseph had incredible smarts. God gave him incredible intelligence. And he devises a plan so that they can survive that. Well, we'll fast forward a little bit. The famine does come. To the point where his family back in their homeland begins to really feel the effects of that famine. They are facing death, starvation. And so his father sends off the brothers. They come to Egypt. They, they look for food and they don't realize it, but they are reunited with Joseph. Joseph realizes it's them, but they don't realize it's Joseph. And if you don't know the rest of the story, it's interesting. You can go read it today. But, but I want you to see this. There's finally a time when Joseph comes forth to his brothers and tells them, I'm Joseph, the, the brother that you sold into slavery, and, and they're frightened. Okay, is he going to exact revenge? They see his power. They know with one word that their lives could be taken. And yet what does Joseph do? Genesis 45, verse 4 and 5. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What did he mean by that? Well, if the covenant is going to happen through the lineage of Abraham, and, and this is Joseph's family and his father is part of that lineage, and if they die, does it stop at that point? And yet God says, look, I've worked it all out. In my sovereign plans, you have come. And yes, I will bring correction to you, but I'm going to show you mercy and grace. I I will give you a rescuer. The rescuer in this scene is Joseph. Where he could have easily just come back to his brothers and shown anger and tried to get even with them for what they had done to him earlier in life. Instead, he has a compassionate heart, a heart of forgiveness, and a heart of restoration a hint of what Christ would do. As you read through the Old Testament, you continue to see these hints, whether it's David and Goliath, you see all these different things. Moses, remember Moses? A beautiful picture of how Moses is one of the hints that God would give us. God raised him up in the days of the Israelites were in captivity for hundreds of years. They had been in slavery to the Egyptians. If you remember the story, 
Moses' mom puts him in a little bowl and floats him down the river. And as God would have it, he's, he's caught by the princess and, and is raised in royalty. But one day, God reveals to him who he really is and a call upon his life. By that time, Moses is out as a shepherd for 40 years. Moses has a plan for his life. Shepherd these sheep and just live life. Simple life. And it's through that burning bush that one day God gets his attention and calls him to be a deliverer, a rescuer for the people of Israel. And do you remember how Moses initially reacted? (laughs) I think you got the wrong guy. And he began to go down this laundry list of all these things of why he wasn't the man. And God kept on saying, no, you are the man. I've pronounced that. This is my covenant. Well, again, we fast forward a little bit. He begins to lead his people out. He goes to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh, um, because God begins to bring plagues, at first the Pharaoh says, there's no way I'm going to let your people go. You're my workforce. I, I, you know, I need you. I'm going to keep you in slavery. Yeah, Moses goes back and says, no, let my people go. This is God's will. And God be- uh, begins to, to put plagues upon the Egyptians. One by one, these plagues happen. And Pharaoh will kind of, you know, feel the brunt of the plague and and say, okay, I'll let your people go. And then once the plague was removed, the Pharaoh would change his mind. This happens over and over and over again. Till there's a final plague, and that final plague, God said, the death angel is going to come. Now again, you're going to, okay, Pastor Bobby... There sure is a lot of death in all this. There sure is a lot of pronouncement of blotting out and all that. Folks... We need to grasp this. We, we want to make everything really simple and nice. Holy God is a God of judgment. It's part of the holiness. But he's a loving God. And he's provided a way. To take away the harshness of God's judgment on sin takes away the holiness of God. I mean, it, you, you can't be holy and simply just kind of look the other way of, of sin. It's one of those things that I think in modern Christianity, we kind of want the nicer version, the cleaned up version. And yet, when we look at historical Christianity and we look at the Bible, the Bible never apologizes that God is a God of judgment. Now, why can we do that? Because we make much that God has provided a way for you and I to escape the judgment. If it was just judgment... If all that you and I were facing is the judgment of our sins, what a sad story. What a defeating story. What a terrible story. And yet we have this promise of a rescuer. From Genesis 3.15, we have God's promise. One day I will send a rescuer. Well, in this story, that final plague comes. And sure enough, the death angel is going to come that night. But God said, if you take a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, and and I want you to take the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorpost. And everybody who has the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the death angel will pass over. That's where the Jewish people have Passover. It's that recognition today of what God did there. It's a hint, guys. It's all a future sign of what the ultimate lamb, Paul would talk about, uh, Peter would talk about. We could go to the New Testament and they directly link this Passover lamb to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Time and time again. Exodus twelve thirteen: the blood of the lamb will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. A hint, even there with Moses, of this rescuer that was coming. This ultimate Lamb of God that God would send to save us from our sins. Carly and I, we, we really love those books on tape. And, and again, sometimes we were, I don't know, lucky enough or smart enough to where we kind of put the clues together and we go, ah, I bet it's this person. And a lot of times we were right. There were a few times we were wrong. But there were other times we were completely clueless. We listened to the whole thing and go, I don't know who did it. And then all of a sudden, Sherlock Holmes or one of the heroines of Agatha Christie would begin to say, here's what happened. And then it began to seem much more crystal clear. How did we miss that hint? How did we miss that detail? In this Advent season, as we prepare our hearts in celebration of the coming of Christ for the second Advent, that's the joy that we have today. You and I have the advantage of looking back in the Old Testament, all these hints, and go, there, look, there, there. One of the things I think my guys in discipleship that that we like the most is is when we're studying the Word and we're going, you know, that's just like this other passage, this other book, this other thing. And you begin to see not just the breadth of God's Word, but the depth of God's Word. It's probably one of the most miraculous things that you say, man, Ephesians actually connects back here to Leviticus. We didn't think anything could connect to Leviticus. And yet we begin to see that, the beauty of God's sovereign work for us. The Bible is filled with clues and hints. It's filled with clues and hints about his second advent, the second coming. Now, sometimes I think people take it a little bit too far. Uh, I don't think that we can know the day and the time. Why? Because God said, not even the Son knows the day and the time until I tell him. And yet there will be people, smart people, people that I, I really do believe love God, and they will try to take all these hints and all these clues and say, February 13th of this year. And there's been all kinds of predictions like that in the past. And... Ultimately, we're sitting here today so that we know that those predictions have been wrong. Those hints and those clues, I don't believe are there to give us an exact date. I think they have this purpose. In the same way that the Old Testament hints and clues prepare the hearts and the minds to anticipate the coming of the Christ, you and I can read the New Testament and we can say, okay, look at all these hints and all these clues. That Christ is coming back. In a world of chaos, isn't that kind of the hope that we need sometimes? Just to know that God has a plan and that God is working his plan. I think that's the thing that I need the most. Whether it's in the midst of COVID, whether it's in the midst of all these other things, you know, the world, it just seems like there's so much chaos today. That God ultimately is still in control. That he is sovereign over us. And that he continues to work his plan. Let me ask you a question as we close, and then we're going to just sing to our God this morning. Do you think that there is the power of any man, group of men, nations, to thwart the purposes of God? Can, can, can mankind come together in such a way, such rebellion, such adversity toward God, that somehow God's perfect plans would be put aside? 
That's the beauty. And yet we wait. And sometimes in that waiting, we wonder, God, why isn't Christ coming back yet? I mean, the first century Christians, Paul, Peter, when they're writing uh, the scripture that we read today, they were in full anticipation that Christ was coming back in their lifetime. I mean, they're writing from that perspective. Hey, tomorrow could be the day. The next week could be the day. And yet here we are 2,000 years later. And Christ is still tearing. Because he's forgetful? Because he just wants to look at us suffer? No, because God is working his sovereign plan over us. I can take that big picture of God's sovereignty over us and I can apply it to my own life. When chaos fills your personal life, when you're wondering, okay, God, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you solved this yet? Can you have confidence that God is working his sovereign plan, not just for humanity, but for you? This is the beauty of the first advent. And it gives us hope in the second advent that God is working his plans. That he truly is sovereign over us. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you so much. Father, for the hope that is Christ Jesus. And Father, sometimes it's really easier to accept, Father, this bigger plan for humanity. And that we could be in mental agreement and even spiritual agreement. That no man can thwart your plans. And yet, Father, when we break it down to our own individual life and, and all of a sudden chaos has come into our own life, sometimes we forget that what we believe for all of humanity, it's a little bit harder to believe in our own life because we feel it so personally. Father, this Advent season, as we look back at the hints that you gave, starting with Genesis 3.15 and just throughout the Old Testament, all these pictures that one day a great rescuer is coming. Father, help us to be reminded that you are a God who's always working your plans for your glory and for our good. Help us to rest in the midst of this chaos in your sovereignty that not only can man not thwart your plan, But Father, you have a plan for us in a personal way, a covenant. And that even when we're unfaithful, you are faithful to keep your covenant. Father, this morning, help us to make much as we await the second advent, Father. And let us take heart from the first advent of Christ. We love you and we thank you. And now, Father, we sing the song of truth about how you just are truly sovereign over us. We love you. We pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.